get out of the building. If you've ever heard this advice before as a founder, wait, what, what am I saying here? Of course you have. Today, we welcome a true titan of the startup world, the man who coined Goob and pioneered the customer development methodology, which has been instrumental in shaping the lean startup movement. Steve Blank is not only a serial entrepreneur with eight ventures and four IPOs under his belt, but he's also an accomplished author, having penned four influential books, including The Four Steps to Epiphany and Startup Owner's Manual. Also an adjunct professor and co-founder of the Gordinian Knott Center for National Security Innovation at Stanford, it's safe to say that Steve has made a lasting impact on the entrepreneurial landscape. The masterclass you're about to listen to was originally a private session for the Latitude community that was too good not to share with the world. Hosted by my co-founder and Latitude CTO, Yuri Danilchenko, this chat covers how the customer development methodology came about and evolved over the years, common misconceptions and pitfalls about doing customer discovery and building MVPs, the impact of AI and other emerging technologies on entrepreneurship, and Steve's biggest lesson from past failures. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. dive right into it, I think my first question would be, can you briefly share like how you became involved in the startup world? How did it all start? Well, um, you know, I started in the U.S. military uh, in a war zone. Being a creative and uh, using initiative is kind of the reason why you you kind of stay alive. Um, And when I got out, um, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I went back to school and, and gee, I realized that I probably had a lot of attention deficit disorder and, and still like to operate in, in worlds of chaos and uncertainty. And I managed to find my way to Silicon Valley and, and realize you can actually make a career out of hurting well in chaos and uncertainty. And that was early stage ventures. And so I spent 21 years doing a series of startups uh, of four IPOs, but more importantly, two failures that left uh, two craters so deep they had their own iridium like. We'll be digging them up 65 million years from now. But it was out of those failures that I started thinking about, you know, what made startup startups win and what made others selling off their furniture. And, you know, that's kind of the conversation we can have today is what are some of those basic techniques that founders need to think about that might not come naturally? They certainly didn't come naturally. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And what specifically inspired you to come up with a customer development methodology in your journey? And I'm also curious, how did, has, has it evolved over time? You know, it's been a couple well, of years published it. You know, uh, customer development is really nothing more than the best practices of what founders did for the last 50 years. Um, but we wrote it down and explained it in English and created a methodology that's repeatable. I mean, it's, it's not like people never got out of the building and talked to customers, it's just that there was never any formal process because when I was an entrepreneur and maybe still today, investors didn't care about that. They said, write me a business plan. And, and a business plan is a document your investors make you write that they never read. Um, but because they went to business school or they're finance people, they want to have a five-year forecast. And, and I always used to think that was insane because, you know, like we can't forecast the future. Um, Unless we're in an existing market, but uh, more interesting ones were in markets that didn't exist. So the market size on day one is zero. So like, you know, they'd ask you, what's the size of the market? It's zero. We don't want to invest in that. Well, the smart ones did. 
and, and then we, I kind of got it down to a sentence. It's no business plan survives first contact with customers. But we had no other tools. And, and what it, we had done is, as uh, entrepreneurs and more importantly, investors in the 20th century, was simply adopted all the tools and techniques that large companies had used to, to kind of do product management of follow-on products. But there really were no tools for founders turning with a napkin. When you had a series of unknowns, if you think about it, almost every one of you who are in stage, you know, on day one, you might think you know who your customers are and what features they want and what's the right pricing and channel and how much to spend on demand creation and, and how. But uh, I'll bet you pretty fairly I'll win is that you're mostly guessing. You have a series of what I call untested hypotheses. I use that word at Stanford where I am because it's they spend a lot of money in like big words, but it basically means guessing about a lot of things. Um, and so instead of admitting we were guessing, what we used to do is simply because we were engineers go, well, that doesn't matter. I believe, I believe, you know, people were going to want the solution. So let's just, you know, lock ourselves in a room and, and build a product and we'll just go engineer our way to the problem. And so if we raise money, we're essentially burning cash, using people's time and other resources on a series of untested guesses. And so that long answer to a short question is, it was only after eight startups and I retired that I had time to think. And by the way, if any of you have time to think and you're a founder of a company, you're actually not the founder of the company because you should have no time to think. Um, but I finally had time to think and I realized this is a, probably a pretty wasteful way to build early stage ventures. It's the ones I succeeded in. And by then I was sitting on other people's boards and investing in other companies and that those who actually treated their initial idea as nothing more than what we believe, that is, they actually understood that on day one, it was a religious activity. That is, it was a series of faith-based activities that they rapidly needed to turn into facts as quickly as possible. And we had no tools or even words to explain what that was. Did I answer your question? I mean, just how it started. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just curious also over time, um, has the customer development methodology, your views on it kind of evolved or it largely remains the same? Oh, it, it massively evolved. It first evolved incredibly first years. You know, my idea is there are no facts inside the building, so get the hell outside. And so that was customer development. And there was a the whole book and process. That book was called The Four Steps of the Epiphany that kind of kicked off the Lean Startup Movement. But the first practitioner was... Uh, um, Sony had invested in before and became a student later named Eric Reese. And Eric uh, observed, Steve, you know, you grew up in a world, world of waterfall engineering where we built products serially, but it's the 21st century now. People use agile methods to kind of build products incrementally and, and, uh, and iteratively. Why don't we combine customer development with agile? And Eric became the first practitioner of those two combined components. Um, at his company, IMVU, and they have a great book called But um, I had started teaching this at Stanford and realized um, we needed some way to kind of write down what all the hypotheses were that a founder ought to be testing. You know, is there kind of a diagram or a checklist? And so we discovered uh, um, Alexander Oster Osterwalder's book, a book uh, called Business Model Generation, and he came up with a single piece of paper called the Business Model Canvas. And to me, the business model canvas was the last piece of what became the Lean Startup Method. You wrote your hypotheses down on Osterwalder's canvas. You got out of the building using both customer discovery and agile engineering. 
And that enabled a couple of things that were never possible to even, we didn't even have the language to describe. And that was this notion of minimum viable products. That is building something that will get you the most learning at any uh, point in time. And this idea of a pivot that says you're allowed to, when you get enough data about any one of those canvas components, you're allowed to change your mind and actually iterate and change who the customers are, what features are important, et cetera. Um, those components all came together, I'd say, within 18 months. Now, what, to answer your question, what's happened in the last you know, decade and a half, there's probably 10,000 books. You know, there's, there's lean everything. It's, it's kind of great. I mean, it's, you know, it, it isn't until this year that I think lean is kind of obsolete or about to be obsolete, but it lasted for a decade and a half, if not two decades, with multiple people piling on, you know, how do you do it with, how do you do demand creation with influencers? How do you do A-B testing? I mean, there are all kinds of uh, tons of literature. And, and just, I want the listeners to understand Lean and customer discovery, God did not write these on tablets and handed them down from the mountain. They're just a set of tools that founders, when they use them, seem to think that they're an efficient way for how to spend your time and money. But but if you think you have a better one and your investors are okay, were you doing that? Sure. Yeah, there's no one is going to come. There is no lean police that will come do that other than the people who wrote you a check. Did I answer your question, Yuri? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things, I think everybody knows well some of the stuff uh, you kind of published in your book. I'm curious what things have been misunderstood, like what things you've seen people kind of read and get completely wrong from your advice. Well, you know, uh, you know, like every r- religion, there are different variants. You know, um, Eric doesn't, Eric Reese doesn't include the Osterwald's canvas. I kind of believe using some kind of scorecard to figure out which piece of their business model you're, you're testing. The second thing is um, kind of I have this heuristic is first-time founders uh, worry about the product. Second-time founders, you know, if you got through it again, you, you kind of realize you ought to focus on the customer. And if you've done it tw- twice and now you're a third startup, you worry about the ecosystem. Um, and again, having a canvas kind of reminds you of all the parts. So that's number one. It's not just about the product. It's not just about the customer. They get you product market fit. But without understanding channel or, or demand creation or all the other pieces, you might have product market fit, but not scale. Um, but, but the other thing is um, thinking that um, an MVP is just about the, that is a minimum viable product. It's just about the product. All, I also believe this is a key part. And MVP could be testing any part of the business model. You could have an MVP on pricing. You could have an MVP or whatever. Obviously, in most businesses, the first MVP and the first thing you want to find is the match between, excuse me, customer segment and product features, which we call product market fit. But you ought to be testing all the other components of your business with the same rigor that you're testing the product. Because if not, you could have a great product, but you don't have the right price or channel or partners, etc. And then the third part is this uh, getting out of the building thing. Um, you know, I kind of love when you talk to a founder, well, why are you scaling? Well, I've talked to 10 people. <laughs> like, a day? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> like, total? <laughs> and that included your mother? You know, that really is um, a pretty sparse data set, unless there's only 15 customers and you spoke to 10 of them. But um, but it really requires both rigor and, um, and sustained rigor uh, uh, to kind of do this well, to get into sufficient data. 
to see whether you've tested uh, uh, tested that your model. I guess those are the the biggest ones. The other is um, people who really do get into it sometimes uh, like to proselytize the religion rather than um, show the results. So I don't really care, honestly. Uh, when I see a founder, I don't care what methodology you use. Tell me the evidence you have that you have either you know you found traction or scale or something or the process you're getting to that. But I don't care whose religion. If it's not lean, tell me. Just show me the evidence that that you're doing something to efficiently use time, money, resources, etc. Does that make sense at all? Absolutely. I think it's a good segue into my next. Um, Question. Uh, one of my favorite articles from you is actually the startup suicide, rewriting the code. Um, and where you talk about, you know, nobody cares about your code and it's all about the kind of like outcomes, uh, the business outcomes. I'm curious from that perspective, like how can the non technical CEOs avoid those pitfalls, such as rewriting the code? Because there are like a lot of subtleties you mentioned in the article yes. that the non technical CEO would not pick up on. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the big point of the article was, uh, you know, in your race to product market fit, if you don't have spaghetti code that looks like you threw it against the wall, <laughs> you've been thinking too hard. Um, and and I, I, I don't mean that you're not going to have to refactor, that is, clean up the code for scale. So there is a fine line that says, gee, am I, do I have some understanding that how do I go from 100 users to 100,000? You know, do I have the right team in place to go do that? But if I'm building an architecture for 100,000 people on day one, I'll absolutely tell you I've yet to see a startup that's gotten that right on day one. Because you almost always have the wrong customers in mind or the wrong transaction rate in mind or something else. And so, as you pointed out, there really is a fine balance. And, and in fact, if you've hired a, um, a world-class architect on day one, that is a, a code architect, it's probably an hire that's 12 months too early. Um, and actually generalizing you know, rather than, in, you know, very specific cases. But, but I've, I've seen this a number of times as people want to build the world's most perfect architecture. So, and it's just like, that's great, but why don't we figure out if we have any customers first and whether this is the right product. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've I've built one of those products myself, and it was painful. Um, building something yeah. to users and not having users hurt yeah, a lot. And, and let me be clear: it, you know, you're building up technical debt when you that is, you're building up stuff that you're going to have to clean up as you throw out MVPs, etc. And so you really want to do kind of engineering who understands. You know, we're collecting so much debt. The problem, though, is when you have to refactor that stuff feature. Um, Features stop, right? You're you're just kind of getting the base architecture kind of kind of cleaned up, but the ability to for the customers to see new things changing typically diminishes rapidly, and you want to make sure that's done after product market fit, not before. The last thing you want to hear if you're a founder is, "Oh, we can't, you know, we can't add any more features, or we can't pivot because we're cleaning up the code." Well, why'd you do that? Oh, I thought it was too messy. Well, he just kind of killed the company for six months. Um, does that make or stop you stop your ability to work? Yeah, a hundred percent. Now, kind of switching gears to your career as an educator, you mentioned Stanford a few times. You know, it's obviously something that's important to you. Uh, I kind of been hearing from founders in the last 
a number of years, like, hey, you know, don't do an MBA, um, just just go and build your startup. And so these kind of like universities started being viewed as potentially, you know, something that may not, founders may not need to to worry about and just go in the field and just build it. What do you think is the role of universities and the future of entrepreneurship? Well, I think there's a question about what's the role of education and, and founding, right? And so this goes back to my opinion about used MBAs versus, you know, engineers. Um, uh, but, but for me, founders are closest. The only profession I think that founders, not co-founders or not early employees, Founders are closer to artists than any other profession. To me, a founder sees something that no one else does. Here's something. You know, they have this itch that they have to scratch. They have to get it out of them and build something. That's what I mean. They're closer to artists. And, and so if you believe that, obviously I do, the question you really should be asking is, well, do artists need to go to art school or can they be self-taught? And the answer is, I think we have 500 years since the Renaissance of saying that there's huge value of um, artists both going to school and apprenticing um, with people who've done it before and learning some basic techniques. It's just like mu- musicians. Can you be a musician without going to a music school? Of course, but you'll miss learning some of the basics. Um, and so with that as a foundation to answer your question is... Gee, if you're a founder and you can't read an income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow, let me tell you, my friend, you're going to get screwed by like your CFO, your et cetera, your VP of sales, et cetera. If you don't know how venture finance works and you're taking money from other people, you don't, they don't understand the minute you take a take money from an investor, their business model becomes yours. But if you don't understand what their business model is, then like you're also like, so, so just thinking that founding a company is about the tech getting out of the building, that's a key component of it, and your passion for doing it is a key component. But if you have the opportunity to, to go to a good school, you will also get the network, which is incredibly important, about you know other people in your lives, people with money, people with you know uh, that you might want to hire, etc. So I guess I've gone from, who needs to think at school? So like, yeah, if you could if you could, you know, maybe if you desperately want to do a startup, do one. But go back if you can and make sure you get the basic blocking and tackling tools to kind of make your your art, your craft more effective. Did I answer your question, Yuri? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a good message for folks. And we do see that in the community that most people that go to these um you know, big name schools, they find a co-founder firm and find first angel investors at least. And and changes their journey forever. Um, I'd like to talk about the COVID now, like one of the big changes that happened in recent years. And I'm, I'm curious to hear from you, what are the kind of opportunities and challenges you see for early stage startups operating in this new kind of remote reality? Well, first of all, you know, think about it. If the key tenant of customer development is get out of the building and we, none of us could get out of the building, how could I keep teaching classes during COVID? And that was a real learning for me, which uh, basically came down to um, all your first customer and discovery calls should probably, even today, be on Zoom or some kind of video thing. There's no need to fly around the world for the first for the first meeting. I still believe you need to go physically look at people, particularly if you're selling B2, uh, B2B. It's kind of really hard to do that. So, 
sitting inside your office. The second is, um, and and again, this is counter what people want to believe, but I'm absolutely convinced, having seen decades of it, is going remote really misses the conversation. If your job really is rote, repeatable execution work, like you're in customer support, or you're like, you know, I don't know, just doing something that's a repeatable task that doesn't require any collaboration, you could be in an in art for all I care, or out of Mongolia. But if you're in the early stage of a company and you're remote, and I have people in the office, I'm going to kick your rear end from here to Sunday. Um, I, I don't care what you believe, but that's just a fact, is that that nature of uh, physical collaboration really enhances creativity. We've had, you know, maybe, again, 600 years of experience that says there's real value having human beings in the creative phase of a company or organization, having these random interactions with each other um, that you just can't replicate till today. And again, if you're an engineer in a cushy place in a nice location and whatever, and you moved away, um, you know, there's no way you want to believe that. And you'll kind of kick and scream and say you're wrong. And that's fine. But I have to tell you, for those of you who could get people in the office, yeah, you now have probably a 3x advantage of the people who are remote. And of course, there are corner cases where that's not true, but I will contend that's probably mostly true. So I'm, I obviously have a strong belief that, again, for the phase of the company, for early stage, if you're not, peop- if your people are not in the office, you just put yourself at a competitive disadvantage. The only thing you could hope is your competitors are as stupid as that, as, as you've just been. <laughs> um, yeah, makes sense. Do you, do you see any like specific things that happen in the office that are? Of course. Of course. And, and it's all the things the engineers hate. Hey, how come these marketing people are bothering me? <laughs> God, the salespeople come in and ask these stupid questions. Or, gee, I, I just want time alone to code and think. And that's great. But, but, but actually, the creativity comes from one of those crazy questions, either for you or for the head of marketing who goes, well, I didn't know we could do that. Or that sales goes, oh, I've been explaining it incorrectly. And, and while you might be annoyed as the engineer, CTO, you've just added some un- an intangible set of values that if you ask me to quantify, I can't. But I've seen this movie. And literally, if you think about it, this is why Steve Jobs designed the Pixar offices and the Apple headquarters offices to enhance collaboration, getting people outside their offices and actually having what's called the water cooler effect. There used to be a, a tub of water that people would, you know, feed and have their coffee around or drink some water. And it was designed for just having that effect. Um, that, that is the nature of how human beings work and collaborate together. And we have not yet got uh, remote conferencing to have that same. It, it's good enough, right? As I said, it's good enough for discovery for the first phase, et cetera. It's horrific if you're trying to close, close million-dollar deals you know, in, in the enterprise, but it's good enough for a first meeting. It's good enough to maybe, you know, start something. But boy, um, I would never fund something that uh, that people aren't physically, at least for the first year until they, my, my goal is, if you haven't found product market fit, you don't get to go remote. After we go find product market fit, and we're now scaling the company, and we can figure out what jobs make sense that are just, you know, repeatable execution tasks I'm fine. So this is not like I don't like remote employees. I'm just trying to emphasize in the early stages, if you're not in the building together, 
you're just like, you've just decreased your, your odds of success. I guess I feel kind of passionate about it. Yeah. A great message for those uh, of us who work remotely. And I think it's those kind of forced collisions. Like you mentioned, I love the, the head of marketing asking questions from engineers. Yeah. Speeds things up. I think the, the other thing that happened and we all kind of are living through right now is a big um, kind of renaissance of AI. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. How will that impact the future of entrepreneurship and early stage startups in general? Like, what do you it see? It will change. It will change everything. I mean, and so here in Silicon Valley, particularly at Stanford, you know, I could tell the trends because, you know, it's what my students are working on this year. Um, everything has AI in front of it this year. And every investor in Silicon Valley is basically not taking meetings if it doesn't have AI in front of it. Now, this is the lemming effect, meaning, you know, the cattle are going in the same direction, but but it's just a fact. And I, I truly think uh, um, it is going to impact the, almost every industry we're in. And if you if you notice earlier on, I said Link Startup probably had a good twenty year run. Let me give you a thought experiment of what AI could do for Link. And let's just take e-commerce as a as a proxy for an industry because I think it might happen here first. It turns out in e-commerce, we could probably buy pretty perfect information about consumers, right? We could go online and buy advertising data about demographics, we could be geographics, uh, what people have bought. We could build probably pretty good artificial archetypes. That is, you know, let me create artificial personas and data about what some sample customers are. But now, in, in fact, if I do that, I could actually think about, can I run A-B tests? against those artificial personas um, and actually get some useful data and actually see if those tests actually match real human beings. And then I could test those outside. But instead of having to create a website personally, I can now have some generative AI plugins, which ex already exist, actually create websites for me and actually artificially create artificial products. Huh. And so now, instead of having human beings doing this, I can imagine some smart startup, even with the tools literally coming out this week, if not by the end of this year, building an AI platform that automates, if not all, a good chunk of the manual processes. So you're doing 10 to 20x more tests than competitors who are doing this manually going through a lean process. And, and when I think about that end-to-end -end process, I just kind of smile going, yeah, it's kind of lean, but it's now being run or semi-automated by uh, by these plugins that that if someone hasn't written, you guys should be writing that automate some of this process market for market. The key part about, of course, generative AI is that you need to own data, right? It's not just the the algorithm. It's in fact you have unique access to a data set, or you're using a data set um, in a way that other people had it. My idea here would be. Um, using advertising data, at least in e-commerce, you could create some some pretty interesting personas that are damn accurate. And, and then actually, why are you having human beings test against them? Have the machine run a, 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 against them, and you might get some interesting answers. Th does that make sense, Yuri, as an example of what I think happens to lead in the pipeline? Yeah, that um, massively accelerates those like discovery processes. Um, now to maybe a less exciting um, topic, which is like the economic downturn, right? We're feeling it big time in LATAM. I think 
US is going through that and pretty much other parts of the world as well. What advice would you give to founders like navigating this such a bear market right now? Well, as I as I alluded to, uh, up here in Silicon Valley, it's no longer a bear market. Um, it's a boom market, uh, literally, if you have the word AI in your deal. And so one of the things I'd be uh, considering if I was a founder, not to just slap AI on your product, but to actually be rethinking. Um, if you haven't plugged into or been experimenting with any of these tools, if if possible, I'm going to literally stop your company for a week. If it were me and I was on your board, I'd have an AI week in your company. And I get a hold of not only ChatGPT, but every plugin. That's, I mean, there must be 100 plugins a day that are coming out doing some pretty amazing things. Uh, I would truly have an AI week um, and, and see if you could figure out, um, is there something there that might be transformative about your business or product? Uh, because, as I said, there is a, there's probably the biggest influx of capital I have seen um, since I've been in startups, and that's about 40 years, in, in this one segment. Now, it might be a fool's errand, but I, you know, I don't think so. Um, I think this is the real deal, and you ought to, all ought to be thinking about it, because also that's where the money is right now. Did I answer that, Yuri? Uh, Absolutely. I might take your advice and do a, a AI week at Latitude as well. I think that's a pretty yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, it's not like let's change the product. Big idea. I'm not saying change the product, but everyone of everybody who's technical and everybody who's non-technical ought to spend the week either writing plugins, playing with the, you know, looking down the list, going, seeing where the money is, and seeing where the where the tech is going, understanding where Microsoft and Google and OpenAI, even all the everybody who has turf to defend. You look what Adobe just announced, and and others. Everybody has realized that this is a game changer. So therefore, every one of you should be saying, stop, let's spend some time and think about its impact on our business and our customers and what our competitors going to do to us if we don't do this. Yeah, amazing. Um, the, there's one question I have about specifics of like emerging um, startup ecosystems, such as Latin America. I mentioned in the beginning of the call that right now in the call, we have mostly founders from LATAM, and I'm curious if you noticed any unique challenges over the years and these kind of emerging... Yeah, yeah. so, so um, you, you know, the one challenge is answering the question, um, do I want to um, stay local or go global? Um, and, and, you know, depending on the, the country, if you're, you know, Brazil, you have a problem of the market source, but the language limits you to you know, like two countries. Um, Latin America, well, the language is kind of common and the market might be large enough, but is that large enough to be a global business? That is, so those are a set of questions. And if you decide you want to go global, then why, why isn't your first office or at least, you know, your second office within six months, either in the United States or somewhere else uh, or China? Um, and so, I, I guess point one is uh, if how big do you want to get and what's that going to require? And if it's going to require global, don't wait to do that. And I don't mean everybody moves to Silicon Valley. I just mean that you really need to start thinking about it. The second part is um, for founders, not your employees, but the founders, 
and this doesn't involve your investors, it's just you, how much money is enough when if you become successful? Meaning, how much personal money? What number would you sell the company at? Or what, what number, or do you want to run the company for 20 years? You know, and, and you know, what's, is, that, is that goal kind of um, the right match to investors that you might want to go for? This is a, not only a Latin American problem, but I see it in startups all the time. Gee, I could build a great $10 million a year business. I want to call on VCs. Well, I'll save you the time. No VC wants to invest in a $10 million a year business. But I can make $10 million. That's great. But that's not, that, that doesn't match the VC's business model. Remember, I, I talked about learning about how they make money. If you don't understand that they're looking for companies that could be valued north of a billion dollars and may or may not require revenue in tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a year, you're just going to be confused about, about where do I get the right funds. And you also need to be clear about what's enough for you and your co-founder. Will we, is a million dollars at the bank a win? Or you're holding out for $25 million in the bank. And therefore, you need to work backwards from your goal about what size company, where do I get investors, et cetera. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I actually watched one of your recent interviews where you mentioned like when you take money from people, you adopt their business model. I thought that was brilliant. Right. And, and, and if you don't understand it, and, and listen, there's nothing wrong with building a company that, that drops, you know, a couple million dollars a year into your bank account. I mean, you know, my parents were immigrants. That was more than like everybody back to the Neanderthals in their family ever made, if I would have made that. Um, you know, uh, so, so just understanding what your goal is for your first startup. And then you're, if you're an entrepreneur, trust me, you will become a serial entrepreneur because this is the most addictive thing next to drugs and probably even more so you could do um, because, well, it has huge highs. It has a, enormous lows. It's, you know, it's an endorphin rush and then like huge depression. Um, I just want to remind all of you, you know this as founders, but I want to remind you, being a founder is the world's worst job. It's a terrible job. I could not imagine a worse job, but it is the world's best calling. And the difference between a job and a calling is you know, you can't imagine doing anything else with your life. And by the way, if, if you don't feel that way and you think it's a jam, you very quickly ought to get out of it because it is a terrible job. Your co-founder is going to quit. Your biggest customer will disappear one day. Your VCs will try to fire you. I had that all happen within three days. Um, and if you don't go, well, it's just another day, you know, like, you know, we go, why am I doing this? Um, but then you get the highs, you know, you, you close a big account or, or all of a sudden your product gets tracked and the sales curves keep looking like this. That happens every once in a while. Or someone says, I can't live without this product. And you go home feeling like you're 10 feet tall until your wife tells you to take out the garbage and then you like, you can go back to ground. Um, so, so I, I just want to emphasize for all you listening to this, if you think this is a job or you're doing this because it's cool or because your friends think it's cool, it's you're it requires the passion of an artist and the drive to want to do this to get up off the floor when things fail if you're not driven to make something happen and, and just remember um, we have a special word for a failed entrepreneur almost in every entrepreneurial cluster it's the same word anybody know what it is you know what it is you're for a failed entrepreneur no experienced it's a big idea. You know you're in a 
entrepreneurial cluster, that is an environment that supports entrepreneurship, is that people don't say you're a failure. In fact, I remember, remember I failed at four out of my eight. The first thing that people would ask me when I was, well, I'm depressed, it was terrible. They go, okay, what's your next startup? And you go, what's my, I'm still, I'm still in mourning. No, Steve, what are you going to do? We're here, here. Let's go do another one. Um, and if you don't get that in your community, you need to leave the community because you're not an entrepreneurial cluster. You're not in a place that supports innovation and entrepreneurship. That is, if people keep going, or you're going to pay back the money, or your parents are shamed, or you know you shamed your family or your community, or what? It's the wrong city or town or even country. You you need to be operating in an environment that supports learning what we call risk taking, but really is learning and discovery, learning and discovery inside of a company, and learning and discovery. If you fail, it's just okay. I'm not going to make those mistakes again. All right, let me let me mourn for at least three weeks. That's my. That's my limit. You get to mourn for three weeks, and then you get off the floor, and you go do it again. Uh, and if it was an honest failure, people will give you money again. Um, as long as you don't blame it on someone else. You go, oh, man, I wish I would have known X or Y. Let me tell you everything I learned in my last startup. That's another check. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Why wouldn't VCs want to invest in like people, the few people that really know how hard it is right, and been through the journey? Right. So there's a, let me just remind founders in the, in the United States, we have the pilots who fly planes and land them on aircraft carriers. That is ships at sea. And if you've ever seen people doing this, they do it at night in rainstorms and whatever. It's like, man, do you think like a commercial plane is tough landing in the rain? Imagine a, a ship that's going up and down and the plane is going like this. And every once in a while, a pilot will crash one of those planes. They'll fail to land and they have to eject and they have to rescue them from the ocean. You know what the Navy does when you when you crash one of your planes? They give you another one. Why? <laughs> because the odds say there's. I don't think there's anyone who's ever crashed two. <laughs> so they now know you're the most experienced carrier pilot in the Navy. It's the same thing here. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, so. We have a, a lot of questions from the audience. Uh, uh, you okay with that? I'll switch over to sure. Mm-hmm. And some of them are from Anonymous, but the ones that are not, I'll let the folks jump in and ask their questions. So the first one is from Anonymous, and it says, um, you said Lean is going away. So what's coming next after Lean? Well, I think I explained some of my views on on how AI is going to be transformative. Um, That's just my hypothesis. Um, But I'm just looking, if I was an entrepreneur um, and doing a startup, I'd be building enterprise software to um, automate that pipeline that we're all doing manually, figuring out what parts I, I could automate, what parts could be semi-automated, what parts do I need unique data sets for. But, you know, for the last 15 or 20 years, you know, I believe, well, this is an interesting startup and people will come up with better things and we'll have better methodologies. And while, as I said, people have improved the methodologies, tons of books and whatever, it's still kind of like, if not the best, it is the one, it's a methodology you could explain to your mother and your investors about why you're doing this. Um, but I think the AI thing really might have some impact on, on you'll still be able to recognize it's an innovation pipeline, but you'll realize that a good chunk of it might be done by. That's all. That's what I meant about lean being replaced. Got it. All right. The next one is also from Anonymous, and it's asking customer interviews versus sales. Do you get the same learnings on each process? 
And do you have any tips on running good and unbiased customer interviews? Well, I have a set of videos on my website on bblank.com about some exercises you could run. Uh, Alexander Osterwalder wrote a great book called Testing Business Model Ideas. Um, And um, if you don't have a copy of that, it's almost like a great cheat sheet about the million ways to test different parts of the business model canvas and and, the A-B testing. I would start from there. But again, there's a ton of literature on, on, on doing that. Awesome. Um, the next one is, uh, what are you really excited about these days? Folks are curious. I'm excited about everything. Uh, um, you know, in the United States, uh, uh, right now, there's not as I mentioned, there's not only the emergence of AI, but there's also the emergence of uh, new ventures that focus on uh, the defense industry. Um, you know, the U.S. Uh, is now essentially in a cold war with China, um, and um, uh, we're quite concerned about, um, um, you know, where the world is going to end up in the next couple of years and worried about Taiwan. We're also worried about the, um, the Ukraine. And so um, commercial technologies are now uh, being adopted by the U.S. government where they never had to worry about that before. Uh, so, so that is one area that I'm spending some time in. Um, and then uh, there's a resurgence. Remember, this place was called Silicon Valley, not Silicon Valley. We used to make chips here. Uh, we outsourced most of it. But Silicon is actually coming back because the U.S. government, for the first time in 50 years, basically has gotten involved in what we'll call national industrial policy, where the country is making major investments in infrastructure. And in this case, it's not bridges and roads and electricity. Well, it is kind of electricity in terms of battery factories and chip factories and the rest. So the U.S. government is now throwing hundreds of billions of dollars into areas that my students and startups are starting to look at as well. And then the last area is climate, um, which is a really big, there are very specific things you could do, um, you know, carbon footprint reductions, new batteries, EVs, et cetera. Those three areas, I, I, I'd say you have AI, you have, um, and defense and uh, basically uh, national infrastructure in the U.S. are uh, things I'm looking at right now. Amazing. Do you think, uh, looking back at kind of what you mentioned with China and others, um, do you think like outsourcing era was kind of a, a mistake in retrospect? Oh, yeah. It was a huge mistake for the United States. It was great for the uh, people in China. So, and, and I don't mean that as pejorative. I'm meaning I'm not being facetious. Uh, we Chinese have raised more people out of poverty in the last, you know, 30 years than any other nation at any other time. And, uh, and I think they've done well by their people. In the United States, though, um, um, we basically emphasize profits above all. And our implicit industrial policy was like, well, it doesn't matter as long as we can make it cheaper elsewhere. And so we hollowed out um, kind of our core um, manufacturing base by shipping it off to the lowest cost provider, which in this case was China. And so we lost a lot of core industries that uh, the U.S. used to own. We used to have the manufacturing used to be the heart of the Midwest of the United States, no longer there. Some of it's coming back, but it, it was done in the U.S. It wasn't just one political party. It was both parties. Uh, and it got captured by people who said, you know, the only thing that matters is profits. 
Um, it turns out they were wrong. Um, next question is, how do you define which are venture-backed startups and which are non? Um, and I guess this you know, bootstrap kind of like um, startups being brought in here. I think it's very relevant to the current VC um, the, the environment that we see right now in Latin. Yeah, I, I and and again, I'm absolutely the inverse of an expert in Latin American finance. But but I think the following heuristic uh, applies anywhere. If you don't understand, I'll keep saying it a million times: how potential investors will make money and what kind of returns and scale they're looking at. If you can't go up to a whiteboard and draw that, then you're just going to be like silly and calling up people or or expecting you know. These people will love you or not, et cetera. So you need to figure out, well, what class of investor matches what size of opportunity I'm going after. And I don't mean drawing the, oh, here's the business school, total available market and share market. How much revenue do you think you can generate in the next three to five years? Great. Does that match what investors are looking at? If not, why not? Explain to me why not. Explain to me which ones are looking for that. And And don't get me wrong. It's not that they're, Aren't investors for small businesses or, or you know, businesses that aren't going to be a unicorn? But just make sure you understand, A, where you're going to go, and B, who invests at those different scales. Yuri, was that your question or did I miss it? No, I think that's spot on. Makes sense. And um, the next one we have is actually regarding the Silicon Valley trends that you could share with us. So folks are interested, kind of like, what are other things you're seeing that are exciting in, in that area? Well, I think I mentioned them. I, I think uh, right now everything's AI. It was drones. It was distributed finance last year. It was blockchain, blockchain, and blockchain until you know one of Stanford's finest ended up in jail. Um, uh, and it, and and by the way, um, I'm talking about tech, but at the same time in my classes, uh, I have some great life science students as well. So uh, by life science, I mean. People do therapeutics or medical devices or diagnostics or digital health. You know, that's a parallel universe, both um, in the venture world and even almost at Stanford, is that those technologies uh, barely overlap. So right now, digital health and AI digital health is kind of that intersection of something. And, uh, and life sciences, and I think we're seeing more and more of it. I'm invested in uh, uh, AI-driven um, prostate cancer detection and some other AI companies uh, that are working on both diagnostics and drug design. Um, so I think we'll see closer interaction. Uh, so I don't know how much uh, life science investing or, or uh, digital health investing is going on in Latin America, but that's another interesting area. Yeah, we saw um, we saw an increase after COVID of education and uh, healthcare companies for sure. Right. Yeah, uh, and I think that's going to continue. I think, uh, you know, the one good thing COVID did for, for everybody is exactly, you know, the call we're on is that we now take for granted we could do not only education this way, but we could also do telehealth this way. Um, you know, that, it, that doctors could get reimbursed, at least depending on your country or you're in the U.S., what state you're in, for actually having, you know, schools electronically. I think it would accelerate in that, at least in the U.S., by a decade. There, there's another question I think is a good one. Um, what, what was the biggest lesson a failure taught you? 
Um, well, there, you know, I have a list of that, but uh, the 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 biggest one, um, and and maybe I'll just average, and then I'll talk to tell you some specifics. The biggest one um, was believing I understood uh, a problem, and I didn't even understand that what I was doing, but I just wanted to build the solution because implicitly I thought I understood a customer problem. Um, and therefore it's like, let's get to work. Come on, let's build a solution. Let's ship it. You know, we're going to push to the ship date and only finding out, you know, way after I shipped that that wasn't what people wanted or cared about or whatever. And I just was wrong about my assumption. Um, the other failure mode, which was the biggest failure was, um, um, I believed my own bullshit. Um, I was so good at creating a reality distortion field about being able to raise money and attract people. Um, I believe that was right. And it turned out customers voted with their feet. Um, but, um, and, and so, so for me, the biggest lesson was, um, and there's a group word has its uh, roots in Greek called hubris, H U B R I S, which essentially is a Greek word for believing your own bullshit. Um, I got caught up in my own reality distortion field. And, um, and it was just, a, it was a large disaster. I was on the cover of something, I don't know if it's still around, called Wired Magazine. And 90 days later, I realized I was going out of business. And I had to call my mother. Well, as I said earlier, was an immigrant. English wasn't her first language and said, Mom, I, I just lost $35 million. And you know what she said? She said, where'd you put it? I said, no, I, <laughs> I, I, lo I lost it. It's gone. And she broke into languages. I barely remembered and said, well, the country we came from is gone. We didn't know where else for us to go. And I said, and this is back to the other point. No, you know, the people who gave me that money just gave me another $12 million to do my next startup. Uh, but the point was, in, in that case, I failed because uh, I, I truly uh, not only didn't get out of the building and didn't deeply understand the customer problem, I thought I was God's gift to entrepreneurship. And, and it was startup number seven. And so I thought I knew a lot. But in fact, I had forgotten a good number of the rules I had actually learned. So now to answer the question. So number one is probably in general, believing you implicitly understand the customer problem without even being able to articulate what is it you think you're solving and for who and why do they care? And then number two is jumping to the solution without spending a lot of time testing whether anybody will pay, use, download, or whatever in sufficient numbers. Let me emphasize in sufficient numbers to make a scalable business. Those were the biggest lessons. Great learnings. The next question is from Doris. It's pretty short, so I'm just going to read it. Um, basically, what are your thoughts on Web3 and blockchain ecosystem? I'm sorry, I, I, you dropped one word. Uh, yeah, she was wondering, what were your thoughts on the Web3 and blockchain ecosystem? Um, I'm not a fan. <laughs> but it doesn't mean it's not a good thing to do. I'm just not a fan. Um, um, you know, um, yeah, let's just leave it at that. Um, it's a long, it's a short question with a short answer, but it really, uh, later. Yeah, um, I'm curious, like personally, if you invest in, in that space, and if not, like, do you think it's yeah. a maturity issue or... Or maybe like the direction itself is doesn't make sense. I, I well, so, um, and again, this just 
this is just my ignorance rather than uh, rather than a fact. So so be careful of interpreting what I say. I just can't tell the bullshit from the reality in um, a good number of blockchain and distributed finance stuff. And the good news is neither could other people with FTX or whatever. So so I wasn't alone. The good news is I didn't put my money in. Um, and I don't mean to say the entire industry is like that, but that was that was a point to myself, which um, I, I wish it didn't happen, but I couldn't tell the difference between good and bad in that business. Where most others, I could tell. And and it's not the nature of that there are bad people. It's just I couldn't tell what was a good business or bad. Got it. Does that Isn't make it? sense? Yeah, yeah. And there are obviously people making money and, and doing good things, and God bless them. I just can't tell the difference. Makes sense. Um, the next uh, question is about TikTok uh, advertising. So people are wondering if it's prudent to use that uh, their uh, advertising for their startup if it's like a national security issue in the U.S. Well, I'll confuse U.S. national security with demand creation for your business. So, so TikTok and other influencers or whatever. You know, when I first heard about it, I just kind of rolled my eyes till I realized, gee, even terrible. If there is, as long as it's legal, you know, you want to create demand and drive it to your channel, whether that's your website or you know, an app or something else. TikTok and influencers and other things uh, um, in social media and, and new constructs do that. For God's sake, don't don't not educate yourself and and don't ignore them. Um, because remember, the once you find product market fit, some of the other things you're testing is how to get customers, how to keep them, and how to grow them. And so you should use any means necessary to go do that. With that, Makes total sense. Um, the, I, I want to close with this question, which I think is pretty cool uh, for us to, to have as the last one. Is what, What's one of your favorite uh, stories of applying uh, customer development methodologies? Like, do you remember... A startup or a company that you know applied it and you were really excited about the outcome well i was just excited because it was a great story is that a set of students uh, now you got to remember 10 years ago when drones were new um you know they proposed doing drones to fly over agricultural fields in california to put um an uh, instrument called the hyperspectral scanner on that drone so they could measure um, um water usage of individual trees and plants that in uh, almond groves and the nutrient levels uh, underneath plant by plant and give the results to farmers and they could do that at a fraction of the cost of uh, any other method um and so you know they did a good project in the class and and then i get a call about six months later and it goes like this hey professor blank we're so and so i don't know if you remember us we're raising five hundred thousand dollars for a pre-seed round and or back then it was probably an a round that's how long ago but it was a small amount of money and I go, well, great. I remember you guys. Why do you need the money? Well, we're going to build the MVP for real. And I go, really? Why do you need $500,000? Oh, Professor Blank, we're building the drone. And I went, oh, really? That's your MVP? Oh, absolutely. And I go, you know, it's not too late for me to change your grade. <laughs> and they went, what? Why? And I said, you know, I think, I think you should probably get an F, not an A. And they went, why? I said, well, wait a minute. Who are your customers? Oh, they're still the farmers. I said, well, what's the product? And they started talking about the drones again. And I said, no, no, what, is, what product does the farmer see? Do you remember what I just said, Yuri? What product does the farmer see? 
yeah, I mean, they they probably see just the outcome. What's the outcome? Uh, like a, a better, you know, the the better product production on their on their. No, they saw paper report, right? They saw a little spreadsheet yeah. by plan or a map or something. I said, "Well, wait a minute! Isn't the MVP the map, not the drone?" <laughs> and they started laughing at the other end. They said, "Damn, we're engineers. Well, of course, we wanted to build the drone. <laughs> no one wants to build a map." They said, "Well, your MVP should cost like maybe five dollars." And, and of course, we started laughing. They said, "We'll call you back in another couple of weeks." <laughs> and of course, they ran the MVP of a paper output. They discovered lots of things that farmers cared and didn't care about. And guess what else they discovered? At least in the United States, they were so focused on the drones, they forgot that in the United States, there are 5,000 crop dusters, that is, small private planes that fly over farm fields that spray chemicals or spread seeds or whatever because the farms are so large. And so their first place to put the hyperspectral scanners is they use the existing crop dusters as a distribution channel when they weren't spraying, you know, the crops, they would just hook on these scanners. And now they had coverage instead of having to build 5,000 drones. <laughs> and, and they still, they, they are still mad at me saying, damn it, we want to build the drones. <laughs> so does that make sense? Is that an example for, that's good yeah, enough? Absolutely. That's a great, great. Uh, thanks for sharing with us. I think we're at time, Steve, it's been a huge pleasure having you here. Um, uh, Amazing, inspiring conversation. So can I give your your, your uh, viewers just one last uh, thought? Um, sure. So so one of the things, is, particularly if you're a founder and you really believe, you know, this is your passion, the thing to remember is uh, because you will end up with some of the characteristics of an artist. And, and one of those unfortunate characteristics is you don't get a memo from anybody that says, take care of your family. Um, or take care of your significant other. Um, and, and, uh, and sometimes you discover way too late is that, um, you know, you missed one too many dinners or you missed too many plays for your kids or you missed their football game or their, you know, their sports game or their play. And you think that, well, if I have a longer weekend, I could make it up. You don't get that time back with your spouse or your kids or whatever. Um, and uh, I don't want to, you know, lie to you. There is no such thing as a balanced life if you're a founder. But but you have to really take into account if you're going to have a relationship and particularly if you're going to have children, there is no undo button here. Um, and no one will tell you what the right thing to do is until it's too late. And, um, and so just, you know, on that side, I want you to remember that... Uh, um, you know, you need to think about multiple things simultaneously. Um, and with that, you'll be actually much happier when you, and hopefully you'll all be successful. You'll have somebody next to you having dinner, celebrating your success rather than eating it alone in a fancy restaurant. Oh, so with that, um, I really appreciate the time and um, um, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. <laughs>